everyone, and welcome to The Odo Approach, a podcast created by medical students for medical students to teach you about all things otolaryngology. I'm your host, Aileen, and today we're going to talk about an approach to epistaxis. Tag along for a discussion about this common otolaryngology presentation and stick around to hear some high-yield tips at the end. So what is epistaxis? It is more commonly referred to as a nosebleed and is thought to account for about a third of all otolaryngology-related emergency department visits. Epistaxis occurs in about 60% of the population. However, only around 6% of those with epistaxis will actually seek medical attention. It is more common in males, and it follows a bimodal distribution, which means that it occurs most often in the younger and older populations, in this case being under 10 and over 50, respectively. Epistaxis can be classified as either an anterior bleed or a posterior bleed. Anterior bleeds are by far the most common of the two and account for at least 90% of bleeds. Classically, they originate in an area called Kesselbach's plexus. This is also known as Little's area and it is on the anterior nasal septum. One of the reasons most epistaxis occurs at Kesselbach's plexus is because it is a watershed of the terminal branches of five main vessels. Another reason is the tight tissue in this area, so there isn't much room to stress the tissues before they break. In addition, the Kesselbox plexus is located at the entrance of the nasal cavity, so it's exposed to extreme heat, cold, high moisture, low moisture, and is subject to physical trauma. The five main vessels include the anterior ethmoidal artery, the posterior ethmoidal artery, the sphenopalatine artery, the greater palatine artery, and the superior labial artery. Posterior bleeds are a lot less common, but they are more likely to need medical attention. They are often more commonly seen in older patients. Posterior bleeds usually originate overlying the vomer bone at the posterior septum, laterally on the inferior or middle turbinate. They tend to occur at Woodruff's plexus, which is made up of the sphenopalatine artery and the descending pharyngeal vessels. Woodruff's plexus is located posterior to the middle and inferior turbinates on the lateral wall. Firstly, it is important to note that approximately 40% of nosebleeds are considered idiopathic. However, of the known causes of nosebleeds, the two most common are digital manipulation, which could include nose blowing and picking, and drying of the mucosa in the nose. In fact, a study in the maritime provinces of Canada found that epistaxis episodes vary seasonally, with the highest number of cases occurring in the winter when the weather is colder and less humid, or drier. This is thought to be because the thin mucosa of the nasal cavity is more susceptible to drying in less humid weather, and therefore is more susceptible to microabrasions, resulting in epistaxis. Causes of epistaxis can be divided into local causes and systemic causes, and the list is quite extensive. As mentioned, digital manipulation is a common cause of epistaxis. Other examples of local causes include a deviated septum, septal perforation, trauma, chronic use of nasal cannulas, chronic sinusitis, rhinitis, intranasal polyps or tumors, or foreign bodies. Some examples of systemic causes of epistaxis include hypertension, alcoholism, coagulopathies, and vascular malformations. Epistaxis can also be caused by environmental factors, such as cigarette smoke and allergens, or certain medications, and those will be discussed in the history-taking portion of the episode. Now that we've discussed some of the more common causes of epistaxis, we'd like to go into some rare causes of epistaxis. For example, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, which is commonly referred to as HHT, or Osler-Weber-Rendu syndrome, is a known genetic bleeding disorder in which some blood vessels develop abnormally. 
Epistaxis is the most common sign of this disorder due to the presence of small, abnormal blood vessels within the inner layer of the nose. It is important to be aware of this condition because it can also affect vessels within the brain, lungs, and liver, and there are usually no warning signs before these rupture. Therefore, if recognized early, such as from frequent episodes of epistaxis, the condition can be diagnosed and treated early, although there is no definitive cure for the condition. Usually, this treatment should begin with conservative measures and then move to medical therapy, followed by surgery if necessary. Bevacizumab, which is a vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitor, is a recent advancement in medical therapy for HHT and has been shown to decrease both the frequency and severity of epistaxis in HHT patients. When considering surgical therapies for this condition, a stepwise approach should be taken, which escalates as needed in order to balance the treatment of the patient while minimizing the risk of septal perforation. Septal perforation is another somewhat rare cause of epistaxis. It is a full thickness bilateral defect of the nasal septum, and it usually occurs along the anterior cartilaginous septum. Symptoms other than epistaxis include whistling, rhinorrhea, obstruction, crusting chronic rhinosinusitis, pain, and or a foul smell. Septal perforation can have autoimmune, iatrogenic, infectious, or neoplastic etiology. Additionally, steroid or vasoconstrictor nasal sprays or intranasal drug abuse can also cause septal perforation. We will touch a bit more on intranasal drug abuse later in this episode. Juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma, or JNA, is an uncommon, locally invasive, but benign vascular tumor. These tumors often present with persistent, severe, or recurrent unilateral epistaxis, essentially exclusively in adolescent males. These tumors are usually managed surgically, and because of their vascular nature, are typically managed by a fellowship-trained surgeon. So, how does epistaxis usually present? Most of the time, this one is going to be pretty obvious. You'll have a patient with, well, blood coming out of their nose. However, keep in mind that some posterior bleeds can be more insidious and may not present with visible blood, but we'll get into that a little later. There are some red flags you should keep in mind when assessing a patient. Hypovolemia, hemorrhagic shock, anticoagulant drug use, cutaneous signs of a bleeding disorder, bleeding not stopped by direct pressure or vasoconstrictor-soaked pledgets, and multiple reoccurrences with no clear cause. These require further investigation, and as always, keep in mind that if a patient looks really unwell, call for help. When taking the history of present illness, or HPI, this should include questions such as, what was the initial presentation of the bleeding? Have there been any previous epistaxis, including time and number, and if so, how were they treated? And are there any comorbidities such as coagulopathies? Some associated symptoms to ask about include symptoms of a URI, sensation of nasal obstruction, and nasal or facial pain. Review of systems should look for symptoms of excessive bleeding. This could include bleeding while brushing teeth, excessive bruising, bloody or tarry stools, hemoptysis, or hematuria. When taking the past medical history, known bleeding disorders in the patient or the patient's family should be identified. Additionally, any conditions which can lead to defects in platelets or coagulation should be identified. These could include cancer, cirrhosis, HIV, and pregnancy. It is especially important to ask about the use of medications, including over-the-counter medicines and herbal and home remedies. This is because many medications can be the cause of the nosebleed. It is important to ask when the patient last took their medications. Some medications to look out for include NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen or aspirin, anticoagulants, such as warfarin, platelet aggregation inhibitors, such as clopridogrel, topical nasal steroid sprays, supplements or alternative medications, including vitamin E, Ginsco, or Ginseng, or illicit drugs such as cocaine.
Stay tuned for a clinical pearl about epistaxis and cocaine at the end of the episode. Make sure to ask patients about alcohol and recreational drug use when taking their social history as well. As with all physical exams, begin with reviewing the vital signs, noting hypotension or signs of intravascular depletion. When doing a physical exam for epistaxis, you should simultaneously attempt to stop or at least control the bleeding. Local anesthetic and epinephrine may be used as they cause vasoconstriction, which will help control the bleeding. In general, the physical exam should look for signs of bleeding disorders. A headlamp is usually used for illumination. The patient should be in a seated position and a speculum can then be carefully inserted and its blades can be slowly opened to identify the site of bleeding. If the bleeding site is anterior, it should usually be apparent on direct examination. However, if no site is found and there have only been a few and minor nosebleeds, then no further examination is necessary. Alternatively, if no bleeding site can be identified, but the bleeds are recurrent and or severe, nasal endoscopy should be done. As you can imagine, a posterior epistaxis is not as easily visualized as an anterior epistaxis, so it may be assumed based on bleeding in the posterior pharynx. In fact, the diagnosis of a posterior bleed is often made when methods of controlling anterior bleeding have failed. In all cases, a nasal endoscopy greatly increases the chances of identifying the bleeding site. When it comes to treatment, first and foremost, assess the patient's ABCs, or airway breathing and circulation. Again, if there are signs of airway obstruction or hemodynamic instability, including syncope, diaphoresis, or skin pallor, then notify your staff immediately. Treat these patients as a trauma. Order a CVC, start an IV to get the patient's intravenous fluids, and ensure that you are wearing a gown, mask, and face shield before you examine the patient. Now, the important concept to recognize with epistaxis management is that the majority of anterior bleeds can be managed by pressure. This can be applied externally initially, and if that fails, the more invasive internal means should be considered. Initial management of epistaxis is always very important to discuss with both patients and providers that call for assistance with the management of epistaxis. A few things we always discuss for initial management include, firstly, leaning forward and pinch the soft part of the nose with direct pressure. Apply this pressure continuously for 20 minutes and don't release. If after 20 minutes, the bleeding continues when the pressure is released, then apply a topical decongestant such as Otrovin and lean forward and pinch the soft part of the nose with direct pressure for another 20 minutes. For patients that have not yet come to hospital, if this has not stopped the bleeding, this is when they should come in. Or if a patient is ever unsure or needs help, they should also be advised to come in. For health professionals with experience in managing epistaxis, something all ED docs should be comfortable with, this is when the search for vessels that can be cauterized in the plexus should be considered, followed by local epinephrine and an anterior pack if necessary. Often, this has all been done before otolaryngology is involved, but a big part of the otolaryngologist's job is patient education, including on prevention of further events and how to manage a nosebleed at home. People frequently think that they are supposed to hold the hard part of the nose and lean back, but this can be dangerous and should be advised against. Now we will get into the more otolaryngology-specific management of epistaxis. You may not necessarily be the one performing the following procedures. Always ask your staff what they are comfortable with you doing to help guide your next steps in any clinical encounter. If the patient is stable, ask for an epistaxis tray, which should include a nasal decongestant and local anesthetics, silver nitrate cautery sticks, nasal speculum, frazier suction tip, and packing material, including gauze, maricels, or inflatable balloons, and syringes.
Usually, when otolaryngology is consulted for epistaxis, topical vasoconstrictors and anterior packing has already been attempted and was unsuccessful. However, you should attempt anterior packing again to ensure proper technique. Before packing, ensure adequate anesthesia with topical lidocaine. If you can identify the source of the bleed, attempt chemical cautery with the silver nitrate sticks. There are various ways to do anterior packing, including non-adhered gauze containing petroleum jelly or nasal tampons called maricels or inflatable balloons. The type of packing is dependent on resource availability and local practice. The packing should generally be left in place for two to three days. Maricels will need to be removed within 72 hours to reduce the risk of toxic shock syndrome. Patients should return to the provider who performed this for the removal. A common anterior packing method that is used is a dissolvable method whereby surgifoam is wrapped in surgicel and applied with Vaseline, and patients do not need to return for packing to be removed. Similar to Surgicel, FlowSeal is a dissolvable hemostatic agent that is very effective for addressing many types of bleeds. Although posterior packing theoretically drains the oropharynx, these patients will often present with bleeding through the anterior nose. Putting in a posterior pack is the last part of the epistaxis algorithm prior to invasive measures like embolization or surgery. Similar to anterior packing, ensure adequate anesthesia prior to beginning. The various ways to do posterior packing include the placement of a Foley catheter with gauze or a commercially available pack, such as an epistat. Again, the method is dependent on resource availability and local practice. Placement of a Foley catheter with gauze is the most commonly used method. It involves advancing a lubricated Foley catheter tip through the nose until the tip and balloon are in the nasopharynx. The balloon is then inflated until it is firmly against the posterior nasal coana. The Foley is held in place with a metal clamp, so it is important to remember to place a soft surface, such as a gauze, between the clamp and the nose to prevent pressure necrosis of the nasal ala. However, the Foley alone is often inadequate. The inflated Foley balloon now allows the otolaryngologist to pack the nose with ribbon gauze without it falling posteriorly into the airway. These patients need to be admitted to hospital for three to five days and to be put on antibiotics to prevent toxic shock syndrome from the prolonged placement of nasal packing. If anterior and posterior packing fails, the next two options to consider are endoscopic sphenopalatine artery ligation or embolization by interventional radiology. Deciding between these two will depend on patient factors as well as the resources and expertise at your hospital. Once the bleeding is controlled, it is also important to identify and manage the underlying cause of the bleed. This may involve getting other specialists involved, such as hematology to manage coagulopathies, cardiology to adjust anticoagulants, and family physicians to manage hypertension. If triggers or irritants are known, such as digital manipulation or vigorous nose blowing, the patient should be instructed to avoid these triggers. Lastly, saline sprays, humidifiers, or topical ointments can be given to prevent drying of the nasal mucosa. Now, we'll get into our final tips and tricks section of the episode. Interestingly, cocaine is both a cause and a cure for epistaxis. Okay, well, maybe not so simple. Cocaine is a potent vasoconstrictor and analgesic, which is why 4% cocaine-soaked nasal pledgets are sometimes given as a topical treatment for epistaxis. However, nasal insufflation of cocaine crystals can cause mucosal damage, progressive nasal obstruction, and epistaxis with crusting. Cocaine-induced lesions can even cause destruction of the bone and cartilaginous structures of the nose, sinuses, and palate. Remember when we talked about septal perforation in the rare causes of epistaxis section of this episode? Cocaine can be a cause of this. 
By eroding the nasal septum, the nasal cavity can become quite dry, which leads to further epistaxis. Therefore, it is extremely important to ask your patients about any illicit drug use. Patients may be hesitant to disclose this kind of information, so it is important to ensure that you ask this in a non-judgmental manner. It is also important to remember some of the rare causes of epistaxis discussed in this episode, including hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, or HHT, juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma, or JNA, and septal perforation. Although they're rare, it is important to diagnose these and treat them as we discussed earlier. It is also important to remember that epistaxis can be very dangerous. It can be lethal if not managed properly in patients that are frail or have significant comorbidities. Therefore, a structured algorithm should always be adhered to, and epistaxis should always be taken very seriously. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to the St. John Regional Hospital Department of Surgery within the Horizon Health Network for their very generous support. Please head to our website at www.theodoapproach.com for our show notes and to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Thank you again, and we hope you'll be back for our next episode.